Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast. This is your host, Dr. Colby Taylor, a psychologist and also an assistant professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University. Um, do, I, do I sound different? Uh, if I do, there might be two reasons for that. Um, the first reason is I am recording this podcast in a brand new podcasting studio we have on campus. So it's got like a fancy microphone and mixing board and like all the sound panels on the wall and everything. So it seems way too fancy for this low-class operation that I'm running. Um, the other reason that I might be sounding different is that I've been under the weather. I've been sick. Um, it's not COVID. I've had like four different COVID tests that have come back negative. Um, but I've had a cold for over a month now, and then it's been really bad bronchitis for like 10 days. So I'm just done with it. Um, I don't know exactly what I have. Um, I've had a low-grade fever a little bit. Um, I'm supposed to run in the Memphis Runs for Autism 5K tomorrow. And my wife says that's a really bad idea with as much as I've been wheezing. Um, But I have my asthma inhaler, and I don't know. Uh, I might do it. It might be crazy, uh, but I might do it. Um, Anyways, this is the first episode I'm recording uh, since the fall semester has begun. So uh, earlier this week, we had our our, our first class of the semester, and um, all of my courses are full. And it was, it was kind of anxiety-provoking standing up in front of a, a full classroom. Now, you know, not talking to a microphone in an empty room like I'm doing right now, but standing up in front of 25 uh, college students and delivering a lecture. Uh, but it's been good. It's been uh, rejuvenating, uh, even though I'm sick. And hopefully uh, I'll be able to give it my all next week when we kick back into week number two of the semester. Uh, anyways, in the last episode of this podcast, right, we talked about V-codes in the DSM-5. V-codes were uh, social circumstances uh, that can be coded that aren't psychopathologies, uh, but that should be on clinicians' radar. So, you know, if somebody's homeless, um, if somebody is in a family with divorce, if somebody's um, experiencing job or food insecurity, um, those sorts of things, those are things that should be coded uh, in addition to any uh, psychopathological diagnosis that we give um, because those add important context uh, for clinicians and for others that might read a psychological report. Um, sort of springboarding off of that, I had a mailbag request uh, that I read at the end of the last episode asking me to do an episode on divorce. So this podcast will be dedicated to divorce. Um, first off, I'm always sort of a fanboy. A plug, I'm happy to put in a plug for the American Psychological Association. So the American Psychological Association has a website with resources on marriage and divorce. Um, Rather than give you the full hyperlink, which actually has something weird in the hyperlink, like child custody things. Anyways, the title of the website is Resources on Marriage and Divorce. And if you just Google APA Marriage and Divorce, it's the first thing that comes up. Um, While composing this episode, I came up with a few questions that I was curious in. Um, and that I'll try to answer throughout the episode. So the first sort of question or shower thought that I had was, is is COVID-19, is this pandemic leading to an increase in divorce? Um, And it's interesting in preparing this episode, uh, there's so many different statistics on divorce and different uh, bodies that sort of collect statistics on divorce. So we have the United States Census Bureau. uh, We have private research firms. Um, We even have the Center for Disease Control that collects data on divorce. So you're going to see different rates of divorce. Uh, Numbers aren't going to align. And in fact, a lot of times numbers are going to conflict with one another. 
Um, but according to the U.S. Census Bureau, we're actually at a 50-year low in divorce. 2020 was a 50-year low in divorce. So we're experiencing less divorces due to the pandemic, not more. Uh, we're also experiencing an all-time low in marriage rate. Uh, so less people are getting divorced and less people are getting married. Um, now, there is a caveat to this. You know, this was 2020 numbers. We don't have 2021 numbers yet because we're still going with 2021. Uh, but in 2020, right, there was a legal system backup, right, because court systems were closed for so long due to the pandemic. Um, so it is possible um, that there was a lot of marital strife during the COVID-19 pandemic and continues to be a lot of marital strife. But due to the legal system backup, people are just holding off to file for divorce. Uh, so that remains to be seen. But as of right now, we're at an all-time low in divorce. Um, and there's some numbers to back up that this is not just a uh, sort of a vestige of this court system legal backup, um, because there's been some studies that say that more than half of Americans, uh, like 58% of Americans, say the pandemic has led them to appreciate their spouses more. So maybe th this is a reflection of a real sort of phenomenon of couples growing closer together. Um, again, the Centers for Disease Control, we've seen all sorts of CDC data throughout the pandemic. Strangely enough, keep statistics on divorce, which kind of cracks me up. Um, another shower thought question that I had was, do over half of marriages really end in divorce? Um, and what I found is a little less than half of marriages end in divorce. Probably about 45% of marriages end in divorce. But this is a super complicated metric. Again, because you have different uh, agencies and bodies that are keeping, uh, keeping track of uh, divorce statistics and marriage statistics. Um, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, Arkansas has the highest rate of divorce, while Maine has the lowest rate of divorce. Um, also, in doing these shower thoughts uh, research thing, I, I was wondering, do certain occupations, do certain jobs have higher rates of divorce than others? And yes, they do. Um, if you're a bartender, if you're a flight attendant, or if you're a telemarketer, you're at an increased risk of divorce. Whereas the lowest risk of divorce is associated with scientists and clergy. Um, so this is a psychological podcast. And I want to address whether divorce has a positive or negative impact on mental health. And this is going to depend on a lot of different things. Context is key here. It's hard to give you a straight up answer on this. Um, it's also interesting, as we go through this episode, I want to contextualize divorce as not just a one-time event. We oftentimes think about divorce as sort of a one-and-done split or schism in a marriage, when in reality, it's a continual process. It's a prolonged or protracted process that can take years. Um, anyways, let's dive into sort of the, the mental health aspects of divorce. So first off, the couples that are at highest risk for divorce tend to be in their 20s and 30s. So we're talking about relatively young couples. Um, and a lot of these young couples have young children, uh, which adds psychosocial stressors to the marriage. Um, you're also at an increased risk for divorce if you marry as a teenager, so for, before the age of 20. Um, if you conceive a child before you're married, if you're of low socioeconomic status, or if you date for a short period of time. Um, you're also at risk if you're under financial stress. Um, or if you have drug, alcohol, or gambling issues. Um, and according to research by Hewitt and colleagues, women tend to have longer lists of reasons for divorce than men. Uh, and the most common reasons I wanted to delve into this are lack of communication, emotional fulfillment, or compatibility or incompatibility. Um, another shower thought question I had in composing this episode is, 
what percentage of divorce is due to infidelity? Um, I always thought it was like a super high percent. I was going to say like 75 to 80%. But I was surprised that less than half of divorces are due to infidelity. Um, according to the American Psychological Association, the, the good old APA, uh, 20 to 40% of divorces are due to infidelity, which sort of surprised me. I thought the numbers would be higher. Um, another question that I had um, was, is the seven-year itch a thing, right? Uh, Marilyn Monroe had the famous The Seven-Year Itch movie, which I've never actually seen, but I've answered trivia questions about before because I feel like that comes up in trivia a lot. Um, is the seven-year itch a thing? Do people tend to you know, get bored with their spouses after seven years and um, that's like the highest probability time for divorce? According to a study by Kulu in 2014, the probability of divorce increases in marriage until about the fifth year of marriage and then falls off. So instead of calling it a seven-year itch, um, a five-year itch might be more appropriate. And I don't even know where the itch thing came from. Um, anyways, I have some problems with calling it an itch. That sounds nasty or disgusting or whatever. Um, anyways, I talked about divorce as being a process and not just this you know, one-time schism. Uh, usually with divorce, we have a year or two of crisis and then a longer, more protracted period of adjustment. So we'll have the actual divorce and then an adjustment period. Um, and during this year or two of crisis, there can be conflicting emotions. Um, a lot of times we see increased stress. So we see increases in depression, increase in uh, anger, um, especially anger for the primary caregiver. Uh, but interestingly, we also see relief, especially relief for the party that wanted the divorce. Uh, and especially if there was a lot of conflict that led up to the divorce. A lot of folks might actually experience greater psychological well-being uh, during the divorce than in the relationship. So again, it's hard to put a one-size-fits-all uh, sort of label on divorce. Um, financial difficulties also play in as a stressor. Uh, the more financially strapped you are, uh, the more stressed out you're going to be. Um, another study, Amato and colleagues in 2000, found that adult, adults that divorce are at higher risk of depression, certain psychological diagnoses, and especially major depressive disorder, um, and are even at higher risk of death. Um, and there was this cool article by Kai Colt and Glazer um, that was published in The American Psychologist back in 2018, so not too long ago, uh, that looked at immune response, immune system response and divorce, which I think is super relevant during the COVID-19 pandemic, right? And what this uh, study found is that you can be more at risk for becoming physically ill in the year following divorce. Um, so some people's immune systems actually get worse because of the psychosocial stress that you're under, and you might be more likely to get sick with something like COVID-19. Um, but again, we can't put a one-size-fits-all uh, label on this because the study also found that some people's immune system actually improves in the year following divorce, right? For some people, um, divorce is actually a weight lifted off their shoulders. So um, there's a decrease in stress, a decrease in conflict, and an increase in immune system response. Uh, but I thought it was really cool to sort of see an association, whether it's one way or the other, between immune system response and divorce. Um, we've been talking a lot about sort of the, the spousal uh, implications of divorce. Um, and I wanted to focus on children a little bit. So children of divorce are more at risk for learning and behavior problems. Um, they're more likely to act out in school, and they're more likely to get disciplinary referrals in school. Um, they're also more likely to experience academic difficulties, um, especially right after the divorce. 
Uh, parenting styles tend to change a little bit. Uh, this is always interesting. I, um, I cover parenting styles in my human development courses, right? We cover Baumrein's parenting styles. Um, mothers tend to become more authoritarian, so they become more strict, and they become more insensitive to children's needs following a divorce. Where this, whereas fathers tend to go the other way. They tend to become more permissive, and they tend to become overly indulgent. So they spoil the kids. Uh, both of those extremes are not healthy. Um, some more research that I came across. Hetherington and Kelly in 2002 found that the healing process from divorce usually begins about two years after the divorce, and that by the six-year mark, so six years following the divorce, there's no difference between children of divorce and children of intact families. That's in general. There's, uh, in general, there's no difference. Now, there is a subset of kids that are going to carry uh, permanent emotional scarring from divorce. Um, some take the divorce really badly. Uh, 20 to 25% of adults say they have emotional scars from experiencing uh, divorce when they were children, the divorce of their parents when they were children, right? Um, interestingly, though, it might not be actually the divorce that's causing these problems. It's more likely that the conflict that led up to the divorce, right, the, the years or months of fighting before the divorce, the, the parental conflict and strife before the divorce, results in these negative outcomes, and it's not the actual process of divorce itself um, that results in these outcomes. Um, there are some uh, factors that increase the likelihood that uh, kids and adults will adjust well. Um, remember, we talked about the divorce and then the following adjustment period. And so from one of the textbooks I use in my human development course, it's Sigelman and Ryder's Lifespan and Human Development, um, there are seven influences on adjustment. So the first is having adequate financial support. Again, the better off you are financially, the less stressed out you're going to be. Um, the second is good parenting by the custodial parent, which seems like a no-brainer. And the third, following right after that, is good parenting by the non-custodial parent. Uh, the fourth is having minimal conflict between parents. The fifth is having additional social support, so having a good network of friends, of community support, um, maybe having a, a strong church life or something like that. Uh, the sixth is having minimal other changes in life. Um, so, you know, if there's not a cross-country move or a change in schools or a pandemic, um, those would probably bode wetter, uh, better um, for uh, adjustment with divorce than, um, you know, if those sorts of life-altering events are going on. Um, and then the seventh and final uh, adjustment influence is having personal resources. So what they mean here is having things like intelligence, EQ, emotional stability, emotional intelligence, uh, resiliency, um, those sorts of uh, internal factors um, help to sort of buffer the effects of divorce. Um, anyways, we do know that a lot of people after divorce will remarry. So 75% of divorced parents are going to remarry in the three to five years following a divorce. Uh, when divorced parents remarry, or and I'm not talking about get back together and reunite, but marry somebody different, um, we call that a reconstituted or blended family. Um, over half of these reconstituted or blended marriages are going to end in divorce. 60% of these second and third marriages end in divorce. Um, and what's really, really important, and I don't think can be stressed enough, is that a lot, of, a lot of people report remarriage is oftentimes more stressful than divorce. So remarriage, 
uh, entering into a blended family a lot of times has higher levels of stress involved with it than divorce. Um, okay. Uh, it's especially difficult too if both parents bring children into the reconstituted family. So I don't know, like a Brady Bunch situation, even though I don't know how the parents in the Brady Bunch ended up together, whether they were widowers or divorcees or what happened. Um, if you're bringing children into the reconstituted family, it creates more stress. Um, it also reminds me of the movie Step Brothers with Will Ferrell, um, which got awful reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, when it first came out, the critics hated it. And to me, it's one of the funniest movies. Um, I'm like constantly doing Step Brothers one-liners, right? Talking about the Catalina wine mixer and what have you. Uh, and I was surprised that it got such poor ratings, but I love it. I love that movie. Hilarious. Um, if I'm working with parents uh, and they ask about books that they can read to their young children about divorce, um, I have a few recommendations. Uh, Dinosaurs Divorce is a good one. So I, th I think I've talked about with grief before when dinosaurs die um, is a great, uh, a great book to discuss death and grief. Dinosaurs Divorce um, is also in that same series. I think it's called like the Dino Series or something like that. It's cute. Um, uh, that discusses divorce. Uh, and anything involving dinosaurs, I'm all for. Um, Emerson, my daughter, is sort of in her dinosaur phase right now. And I love it. Like geeking out. Um, another book I recommend is Two Homes. Um, another one is Living with Mom and Living with Dad. Uh, and then another I'm aware of is called It's Not Your Fault, Coco Bear. And Coco spelled K-O-K-O, -K -O, not like the, the hot cocoa. So those are some good books. And those are targeted towards younger children. So I'd say like kindergarten, early elementary school ages. Um, I do know that Sesame Street, the television show Sesame Street, has had a few episodes on divorce over the past few years. Um, I know in the 1990s, Snuffy, Snuffleupagus, Snuffy's parents got a divorce, um, and they did an episode on that. Uh, and then I was watching Sesame Street with Emerson uh, over the summer, and uh, I saw an episode on divorce. So Sesame Street, I think, has done a really good job addressing that. I think Arthur, the television show Arthur, um, has also had an episode on divorce before. Um, and sadly, I saw on the news that, that Arthur is going away. They're not going to record any more Arthur episodes. Uh, which sort of reminds me of that Arthur meme where he's like gripping that pencil in his pocket or whatever. And the Jeff with Arthur and whatever. Anyways, um, there's some movies about divorce. Uh, Mrs. Doubtfire is a classic. Um, the Parent Trap, um, which I saw some memes this week about the, the Delta variant, my plans for the fall, and then the Delta variant, and they were related to the Parent Trap or whatever. Um, and then The Breakup, which is sort of a comedic movie that I don't think involves children, but... Um, might be a good icebreaker to talk about divorce. Uh, I guess take home from this episode is divorce statistics are really complicated and they're often conflicting, which was what was mentioned in the original mailbag request. Sorry, I couldn't uh, offer more illumination on that. Um, it's also really complicated how divorce might be a risk factor for something. So let's take something like substance abuse. Uh, we know that children of divorce are at greater risk of substance use uh, when they become adolescents and adults. Um, but whether that's because of the divorce or because their parents also had substance abuse issues, which might have precipitated the divorce, um, is a complicated question. Uh, anyways, uh, we do have um, some mailbag uh, emails, and I'll read those out. So this is from Ryan, and he says, I'm starting my second year of undergrad in two weeks. I have to shamelessly say I just binged your whole podcast in about a week and a half. Um, the work and effort you put into the podcast is amazing, and I appreciate how human you are when discussing about these dis disorders. 
Um, I find schizophrenia and autism the most interesting so far. The DSM is very daunting for me, but the way you explain things makes it better for me to understand. Um, my question for you, could you do an episode over what students should be doing in their undergrad in order to have a better chance of getting into their master's slash doctoral programs, or even medical school if they want to be a psychiatrist? Uh, my school is in a small town, so I find it hard to volunteer for work, and I uh, wanted to know if you have any advice. Um, thank you so much, and I wish nothing but the best for you and your family. Um, that's the end of the mailbag request, and I'd love to do an episode on what you can do as an undergrad uh, to make yourself more appealing and to prep yourself for uh, the next step, whether it's grad school or med school, or I even got another mailbag email um, from Anne that says, what can I do with a bachelor's in psychology? And I thought I could maybe do an episode where I talk about um, prepping yourself for grad school, uh, med school, and um, employment, even with a bachelor's in psychology. Uh, so my next episode is going to discuss that. We can talk all about, there's so much you can do with a bachelor's in psychology. I think a lot of people say that you need to get a master's or a PhD to get, be able to get a job in psychology, uh, but that's simply not true. Uh, and I'll be happy to talk about that in the next episode. And if you have episode requests, um, feel free to email them to me or questions or comments or hate mail or whatever at ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. I'll try to get back to you as soon as possible. Um, anyways, that's it for this episode. Until the next one, take care and stay well.